0: In a world where planet-threatening, civilization-ending, humanity-uniting movie tropes lie scattered throughout a sea of film, one disaster response expert, with the help of her plucky producer sidekick, will gather together a panel of experts to discuss. Wait, what? Why the f- did they do that? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Welcome to Disasterpiece Theater.
1: Hi, I'm Anna, and I'm here with Always Fresh, Never Salty Rev. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about the Meg. And we're joined by Amanda Fisher, a very longtime friend of mine. Hello.
2: As Anna mentioned, this week we are talking about The Meg. Released in 2017, The Meg stars Jason Statham and Lee Bingbing and made $530 million at the box office. The movie starts with Statham's Jonas Taylor having to leave behind some of his friends and teammates as something mysterious attacks the submarine in which he is performing a rescue. Fast forward to a state-of-the-art underwater facility and a mission into the deepest reaches of the Mariana Trench for scientists to explore a possible new biome. Everything goes wrong, and the sub sent down is attacked, disabled, and in need of rescue. Jonas is reluctantly brought out of retirement after learning that his ex-wife is one of those trapped in the deep. During the rescue, a thermal vent is created that allows the Megalodon to find its way out of the trench and back into the open ocean. Beachgoers, whales, and Rain Wilson are just a few of the things the Meg snacks on during its rampage but not to worry after a reveal of an even bigger meg Jonas and Lee's Su-yin defeat the shark and everyone left alive lives happily ever after
1: Amanda can you uh Tell us a little bit about
3: yourself. Well, sure, Anna, thanks. Uh, much like you were and how we met uh, was through the Coast Guard. Um, I've still been sticking around the organization, so I'm a commander in the Coast Guard, although my understanding is I'm here today as your um, as your token marine biology um, expert. <laughs> we needed someone who knew sharks. Yes, and so I got to put an asterisk on that. So uh, I studied sharks in both undergrad and uh, my graduate studies. Um, including a close relative to the great white, the salmon shark. But uh, by what Uncle Sam pays me for is to drive ships and kind of know about fisheries policy in general. So I would say I'm more of a marine biologist than George Costanza, but uh, less of one than Richard Dreyfus playing Matt Hooper in Jaws. So um, good news is I'm way more of a marine biologist than Jason Statham or anybody in this movie. So I may not be the marine biologist you want, but I'm definitely the one you deserve. I have to admit
1: right out of the gate that I love this movie. I am a huge fan of garbage shark movies. As we discussed, I think it was in our intro uh, to talk about the show, is that I watched so many bad shark movies when I was on sabbatical from AWS that I broke our prime video recommendations for like three months. That all it recommended for months was Mega Shark versus Octodon or like <laughs> something about a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex crossbred with a shark. So, like, this movie for me is one of my sick day movies. That when I'm like got a cold or whatever, and I just need to lay on the couch and enjoy something, this is one of my go-to movies. That does not mean I think it's believable in any way, shape, or <laughs> form.
2: Um,
1: one of the first questions I had for you, Amanda, is sharks that big. They used to exist, but could one exist down underneath some weird
3: thermal layer Oh, that's the question everybody wants to know, right? And I think it's great. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you see these big sharks. And so the the megalodon um, went extinct about, there's still some debate around this, but generally accepted around three and a half million years ago, which uh, really is uh, just an eye blink in time. So we just missed them coming on the scene ourselves about 200,000 years ago. So it's not like the dinosaurs that went extinct 65 million years, a big gulf of time. Like these were around practically yesterday. Um, so could one still be out out there i think it's a fun thing to think about and especially when we all hear stories about supposedly extinct um, sea creatures. We talk about the seocanth or the giant squid and uh, they keep turning up down in the deep ocean depths. What I would say is for somebody that gets excited about this and they get interested in marine science watching a movie like this, I'd say go for it and it's fun to think about. Um, Unfortunately, it's very unlikely that uh, a megalodon would be able to survive down that deep.
1: Because of the pressure?
3: Well, it's more about the lifestyle. It's like taking a country kid and plunking him in to a city, right? So, uh, Megs were coastal predators. They were very much uh, shallow water. Um, They preferred warmer waters. And for them to, we can talk later about like the sort of changes that they were experiencing that led to their extinction. But uh, to imagine them rapidly adapting to a deep, cold, nutrient-poor region, uh, which was Basically, working against all of the lifestyle adaptations they had developed through their gigantism, through their feeding and hunting strategies, um, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I do appreciate. In the movie, I'm trying to remember the book, which I read many years ago when I was still in high school. I really appreciated that uh, they they put the effort into doing a hand wave effort at creating this hydrogen sulfide layer (laughs) to create (laughs) a bubble ecosystem in which uh, supposedly a small breeding population of these sharks could sustain themselves and have prey.
1: You just mentioned gigantism. So can you go explain a little bit more about the whole gigantism idea?
3: Yeah, so the idea, the idea is why did megalodons get so big and why don't we have great whites as big as these? And one thing that the movie does get right um, is the size of these sharks. Um, the females uh, are expected to get up to around 67 feet. Um, those and the males are a little bit smaller. So they do have those um, sexual dimorphism where the, the females tend to be larger as they are in a lot of animals. The sharks, it, it, you have to kind of look at like what was going on around them. Back in back in their day, um, they were primarily whale eaters, and at that time there were an order of magnitude more whales. At least I think a hundred times as many species um, as we see today. The whales were growing larger, and they were in a very hyper-competitive environment. So these sharks were competing with other toothed whales. Think uh, sort of different versions, although they were a little different, but like our killer whales today that were also preying on, on other types of whales. They were in a constant struggle to get a competitive edge. And one way to do that is to get much bigger. Um, so that's one of the forces driving them to get to larger and larger sizes. Um, another theory that's come out in just the last couple years is, um, introduces one of my favorite uh, science terms ever, uh, interuterine cannibalism. So this, (laughs) yes, interuterine cannibalism. This is uh, when...
2: I believe that's the name of the movie we're going to watch next week. (laughs)
3: Yeah, it is a strategy that's uh, known among sharks. Uh, We see it today in some species where the strategy is that the uh, females are growing live young um, inside. They're carrying them inside. They give live birth. And once they consume their their yolk, um, in order to have something to eat, they simply eat each other. And they uh, wrestle around and slowly devour each other until the strongest is born, uh, fully formed, and ready to fend for itself. So it's like the thunderdome in the uterine. It is absolutely. inner uterine thunderdome get to <laughs> use your teeth any way you can there are no rules Um, So as a thought experiment, you can imagine that uh, if you keep giving birth to bigger and bigger babies, then eventually uh, they start to kind of outgrow your uterus. And that might cause the entire shark to grow bigger and bigger through the process of natural selection. And then that could actually be an upward driving force for gigantism. Hmm. It's just a theory, but it's one that's emerged in the last couple of years.
1: Now I'm just going to totally search if there's any horror movies where that happens. Oh, malignant. Malignant is the one where she absorbed her twin in the, in uterus and he's crazy and he's the tumor on her back. Have you seen that one yet?
3: No. (laughs) I wonder if the sharks are like the, the trill in Star Trek. Do they carry the memories of all the, the, their brothers and sisters they (laughs) ate with them as they go through their life?
1: Well, it's interesting that you brought up the coastal thing because, you know, i being in the Coast Guard and search and rescue stuff. There's that one scene with the beach and we looked up that that beach actually exists and it is actually that crowded. And like, Holy crap. That's terrifying. As a, as someone who used to do search and rescue, helping find people who had gone missing at sea or knowing uh, like so much about drowning and what drowning looks like, you wouldn't be able to tell if someone drowned with a crowd that big. Like, because drowning isn't, everyone sees it in the movie where someone's flailing and flapping their arms around. And it often doesn't look like that. And so that whole scene just gave me an anxiety. It probably gave me more anxiety than the shark. Was just seeing mm. that many humans. Well, then COVID happened, and seeing that many humans in one place brings up a whole different anxiety. But it <laughs> kind of makes sense now that it was going for the buffet along the
3: coast.
2: Yeah, I like that it got free and is like, oh, I remember what I used to do. Let's instantly head that direction.
3: Snack time. <laughs> yeah, although apparently it's the pickiest eater uh, that I've ever seen, given that it swims under uh, 600 perfectly available people to eat the one inside a Zorb. Yeah. It's like you have the dish of candy, but you want to get the one that's still in the wrapper. <laughs> um, and it, in the, uh, I thought in the cultural mishmash that this entire movie is, I thought it was funny because uh, the movie was filmed in New Zealand, although that scene was set, I think, in th- its actual beach in China. But I noticed mm-hmm. that the poor bather that gets devoured by the Meg is uh, inside a Zorb. It originated in New Zealand. There's like that giant balloon that the guy is like mm-hmm. moving around on the water in. So I don't know if those are actually caught on in China or not. But um, mm. having been to New Zealand, I rolled down a hill in a Zorb. I can tell you it's a lot of fun. <laughs> do it on a hill so there's no Megs. I actually
1: did two search and rescue cases with people who thought it was a good idea to take Zorbs out on the ocean. For For all you listeners, please don't do that. Don't take Zorbs on the water. They collect a lot of wind. They've got a lot of surface to blow you straight out to sea in a giant plastic bubble. Maybe not the way to go. Oh, it's a terrible idea.
2: With the Meg being that large, I kept expecting as it was swimming underneath all of those people, like I never saw it eat more than one person at a time. I was expecting it to just swallow a group of people like Krill or something.
1: Also, why did no one notice it? Like, that's a lot of water displaced.
2: That's a lot of shark for no one to see.
1: There's a lot of splashing around and stuff, but something that large moving in the water would have changed the direction the water felt like it was going, wouldn't it? Like, how do you not notice a shark the size of like four school buses under you.
3: Yeah, I think you would definitely feel that. The real great whites—that's exactly how they they hunt. They're ambush predators that try to approach their prey from the uh, from the six o'clock low, if you know what I mean, and uh, mm-hmm. and and comp- propel themselves upward with a burst of speed. Uh, that's when you see those doc- shark documentaries where they're flipping out of the water and doing somersaults with a seal in their mouth. Uh, you know, most of that's because they're carrying that momentum from their um, primary prey strike. Their biology is specifically adapted, and likely the Megs was too, although we really have to only guess at what their actual body form looked like. Um, But uh, they would uh, use the extra energy that they had from being something between a cold-blooded and a warm-blooded animal. And, you know, it's neither an ectotherm nor an endotherm. It's called a mesotherm. And they have some ability to call on some energy reserves when they need it and can really put on that burst of energy to ambush a prey. Um, Mm -hmm. Although Megs, we suspect. rather than ambushing from below more likely came in more at a level angle and would go for the major organs for the heart and the lungs to disable <laughs> you as you can imagine your lungs and heart punctured by a by a giant shark
2: would do we did get to see it like pull off that maneuver and really the the one moment of the movie where for me I was the CGI didn't hold up <laughs> When Jason State then comes riding the shark out of the water as it does its you know big dive moment, but in that moment he had just attacked its eye. So I'm I'm curious because um, one of my buddies, his uh, brother is a I'm going to get the name wrong, but he spends his whole life in caves trying to find new like fish and lizards,
3: a herpetologist.
2: Yeah, herpetologist. So if something had had been that low and that dark for that, let's say. You know, split the difference like it'd been down there for a hundred thousand years. How would it react to the light of the sun when it came up? like i was I was surprised to see how well it did with light.
3: I don't do well with sunlight if I've, like, been in a movie theater for two hours. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, honestly, if these, if the supposition of the the story was to hold true, that these things have been down there since the last uh, what three and a half million years or so, um, functionally by that point, it would be a different species. So you would have seen yeah. the megalodons have basically adapted into some sort of deeper water adapted. With and along with its sensory systems,
0: um, mm-hmm.
3: but with that said, um, you know sharks have a variety of senses, including some that we don't have. That are frankly much more useful to them than their eyesight for hunting. Um, they have inside their noses this uh, jelly-filled substance called uh, ampullae of Lorenzini, and uh, they basically are electroreceptors. Uh, and those are useful in a, for a variety of things. It basically gives them the ability to detect electric fields or the changes in DC current along them, um, which can functionally give you the ability to tell changes in pressure and in salinity. It gives them a great ability to sense their environment. And then uh, like all fish, um, they have a lateral line that runs down the length of their body. And it gives them uh, an ability to detect uh, very small vibrations in the water. Um, mm. Yeah. So they can uh, they can hone in on prey from great distances, from miles.
1: Speaking of their prey, we were talking about where they blow up the whale. So Rain Wilson plays the best douchebag. Like he is such a douche in this movie. And To no one's surprise, of course, he doesn't call for help because, you know, he doesn't want his company to get sued, but also I think he wants credit for the Meg or whatever his reasons are. And so he and his band of mercs think they've gotten the Meg, but really what they've blown up is a whale. And my brain went, whales have blubber. Like once you blew that thing, like once you shot it, or I think they were dropping explosives on it, it's like. How could you not tell once you stepped on it? Oh, this thing has blubber.
2: I mean, I wouldn't know if something had blubber if I stepped on it. (laughs) Like, like, I don't think that's a normal, like, oh, yeah. Maybe I've
1: seen the video of the exploding whale in Oregon too many times. I don't know if you know about that story where basically there was a whale that had washed up on shore and it was just rotting. So the local officials figured the best way to get rid of it was to blow it up and just let the seabirds and stuff eat it because it was this huge, giant carcass. And uh, they blew it up without thinking about how far the whale, the putrid whale bits would fly, and so like people got pelted, cars got pelted. Sometime go and look up the video; it's so funny and so gross. I say I,
2: I haven't read that, but I did see it on Reno nine one one. Oh,
1: that is a classic. <laughs> no, it's a real, that real event. It's a classic. It is a real <laughs> event. Oh yeah,
3: it's great.
2: But yeah, like when that guy jumped off the boat to go collect a tooth. Like, I don't think I would have been like, oh, I'm stepping on something that's filled with blubber. I would have just been like, I'm stepping on something that lives Desiccated in the water. Nice. Yeah.
1: I'd have been worried about falling off of it too, like, because there were sharks already
3: eating it. Yeah. And I thought that was actually, uh, in a movie that desperately needed, uh, some notches of realism. I really appreciate that scene. That's I ac- that was actually fairly realistically depicted, um, when whales die and they, for a time will float on the surface, uh, while they're the blubber and, you know, gives them that buoyancy, um. Sharks will come, you know. They're almost birds, sharks, all kinds of opportunistic um, predators will kind of feed off of that. Yeah, that was depicted pretty realistically. Um, as far as them not uh, recognizing it, I mean, uh, sailors have been mistaking uh, dugongs for mermaids for hundreds of years. So Who's to say, <laughs> and manatees uh,
1: apparently, manatees, manatees got tees, mistaken yes.
3: for mermaids too. Right, I do love Rain Wilson's uh, turn as this. Uh, Evil, maniacal uh, billionaire here. So uh, apparently, Dwight's um, beet farm really paid off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I have not spent nearly as much time in the water as I'm sure the two of you have.
1: Partially because you're in Indiana. There's really no ocean opportunities where you live. Well,
2: yeah, that too. So this is really the first movie of the ones we've recorded that I kept bumping into stuff unrelated to our. Our initial topic, but like I've spent a lot of my free time scuba diving in various countries and I spent a lot of time underwater. My impression is that at least half a dozen of these people once the movie is over, they should be dead from the bends the next day, right? <laughs> like just from the, the pure speed that they go from like what a thousand atmospheres of pressure down that low. And she just blows her submarine to the surface. Like she should arrive headless, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> the bends are real. Um, that was a concern for me too. I think they were trying to make the point that like, Oh, Hey, there's like the, they're depressurizing them as they come up. But even with that, how fast they did it, They would have been they would have been immediately in chambers after that.
2: And how fast he went down too. Like, I love that they showed the moment of him like blowing to try to get his ears to pop. That was really the only acknowledgement they gave of like, oh, pressure changes. Here's Jason Statham trying to pop his his ears as he goes down.
1: But there is a difference between the pressure on your body and the pressure in a controlled system. The idea in the submarine is it should be a controlled system of of depressurizing and pressurizing on the inside and outside. But they do play loose and fast with the up, down, up, down, up, down stuff. I wish those bubble scooter things were real though those little bubble things that's so cool
2: it's like the evolution of the ones we saw in jurassic park
3: (laughs) but i mean hey uh we got to kill two sharks and a beach scene and two boat attacks in 90 minutes we we can't take time to depressurize we got to keep the pressure on
1: i liked the evolution of the underwater science base from like abyss to deep blue sea and then this one the underwater Complex is amazing. Is there anything like that that exists in the world, Amanda? Like, What are these research places looking like, or are they just boats?
3: Well, with a heavy dose, I I was going to say you were talking about the Abyss and all that, with a heavy dose of uh, Jaws 3D uh, thrown in. I saw so many movie (laughs) throwbacks in there, um, from the Abyss, I mean, basically a ripoff of the submarine rescue from the first act of the Abyss Mm -hmm. to uh, the scene with the shark um, confronting the little girl, down in the the submarine base, which was straight out of Jaws 3. Um, and actually got me so excited, I went back to re-watch Jaws 3 and uh, <laughs> forgot, like, that's a, that movie gets a bad rap, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just the cheesy movie <laughs> lover in me. I, I liked it a lot.
1: So actually, talking about Jaws, there's, you know, that scene in Jaws in the very first one, where, like, the shark eats the back of the boat and, like, is dragging the boat down. In this movie, they hang that giant shark off the stern of the boat. And it's not even centered off the stern. It's off what the starboard side slightly. They hang it's like kind of off to the side. You know what that would do to the stability of the boat? That just seems like a very poor life choice.
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh you're basically putting all that weight up at the top fulcrum point. And if you know anything about ships, uh, the higher you put weight, uh, the more it destabilizes the boat um, and risks turning it over, which we got to see happen later on.
1: So do you think that's that's why? Because like one of the things that happens is they were making fun of the one guy because he's afraid of the shark. So they convinced him to put his head in the shark's mouth. And then they messed with the crane so that he freaked out and panicked because he thought the shark had come back to life and fell in the water. And while that poor schmuck is in the water, the shark did the thing you were talking about coming up from underneath, and it comes up from underneath, nails him, and grabs the other shark.
3: Yes, that's uh, absolutely right. Uh, The shark grabs the shark, goes across the deck, um, carries the boat over with it, and then it goes over on the same side that they're hanging this uh, 50-ish, probably tons of uh, megalodon off of a single point davit. Um, Yeah, that's a good recipe for turtling a boat. Um, mm. And noting that that was probably the smaller male, they uh, they would top off, even the small ones would top off at around uh, 37 tons. Mm.
1: And, you know, in the Coast Guard, we we'd go through drills and stuff on like, here's what you do if this sort of thing happens and when someone's injured. And so the injuries were actually pretty spot on. Um, someone hitting their head, the internal bleeding with the dad, because he got uh, the the father figure, because he was hit by an object striking him in the water. Another thing that stuck out to me, though, they had someone on that thing that didn't know how to swim. Don't you think part of his training should have been, you got to learn to swim if you're going to yep. be underwater? But that could be my Coast Guard brain because when we go through training, we go through so much swim training. We learn, fun fact, we learn how to take off our uh, BDU, our ODU pants, and turn them into a flotation device. They put you in the pool in your full uniform and timed you on how long it took you to get your boots and your pants off. And then you basically capture air in your pants and turn it into a flotation device.
3: Yeah, you tie them off. Uh, the At least what I was always told by my granddad who was in the Navy is that's why they had those old bell-bottom dungarees. Because if you tied them off, they made bigger, better flotation devices uh, for holding <laughs> air.
1: It wasn't just a bad fashion <laughs> choice?
3: It wasn't. I don't know. <laughs>
1: so that boat flips and then they get into basically a small RHI. Wouldn't that vibration
3: immediately bring the shark? Certainly a vibration. Any As, as I was uh, saying earlier about their, their sensitivity to detecting both noise and uh, electrical disturbances in the water, um, certainly a noise from a, from a propeller, especially in the absence of a lot of other noise, uh, they would certainly be aware of it.
1: So, okay, we're getting towards the end of the movie and you've got like the scene where Okay. First of all, Jason Statham is one of my favorite action heroes. I love him because he deadpans everything, which just makes him
3: funny. (laughs) Our hero squint.
1: Yeah. The hero squint. He's the classic walk away from the explosion. Gruff, I can handle everything. Honestly, my favorite character in this entire movie was the little girl. She cracked me up. Yeah. She was great. Um, Also the fact that the dog doesn't die. Um, I would have been really mad if the shark
3: had eaten the dog. (laughs) But <laughs> Did you catch with the dog that its name was Pippet, uh, which is a Easter egg for Pippet from uh, the, the dog in Jaws that he was calling after it <laughs> yeah. got devoured?
1: So first there's a the scene where he swims out to tag it and then can swim faster than it coming back. Um, they had him hooked to the wire. And so they're basically dragging a giant fish lure. <laughs> they went for the eye. And you always hear like this thing about if there's ever a shark, poke it in the eye. Is the poke it in the eye thing
3: real?
2: Yeah, because I've always heard punch it in the nose with a shark.
3: Yeah. I mean, both are both hold up. I mean, sharks are basically like a living, breathing, swimming tooth. Uh, their mouths are full of teeth and their (laughs) skin is, uh, they're covered in these, um, they're functionally like scales. They're called dermal dentricles. Um, but they functionally look like little teeth and that's where you get that sandpapery feel. Um, if you've ever rubbed your hand over shark skin, um, one way is fairly smooth. To give them that laminar flow and then the other way is uh, abrasive for protection and uh so, yeah, there's not a lot of places you can really punch that shark and make an impact. But two of them would be, you know, the eyes, because those are a sensitive area. I don't think anybody likes getting punched in the eye. And then <laughs> the other is the, the snout, because they do have those. They're very, it's a very sensitive area um, where all that mucusy stuff in their, in their snout called the ampullae of Lorenzini. Uh, it's all located there, and it's a sensitive area. So, if you did it, it would, um, you know, the idea is that you would disorient and confuse the shark and uh, aggravate it enough to give up on you for a moment. <laughs> I mean, really, the smartest thing you can do is be aware of your surroundings and not get into <laughs> that situation. So, that's actually a great
1: point. We were talking about on the beach, people didn't even notice the shark. And, like, there's this huge fear of, woo, shark attacks. And while I know I'm more likely to be killed by a coconut falling out of a tree, what can people do to, okay, not the meg necessarily, but what is the safety things to think about and to look at and how to avoid these sorts of things?
3: Well, sure. Um, so most sharks are uh, what we would call crepuscular. So they're sort of active in that twilight period between um you know, sunset and twilight. Um, so, you know, being aware if you're swimming around those times, be aware of your surroundings, uh, Watch, checking yourself for cuts. Um, again, sharks have a great sense of smell. They're attracted to blood. You know, not just sharks. If you're in anywhere along the Atlantic coast of the U.S. where we have barracuda and other um, sort of shallow water predators as well, um, taking precautions to make sure you don't have open cuts or wounds to attract things helps. For surfers, of course, we think most people know that surfers sometimes get uh, targeted by great whites um, usually as a case of mistaken identity. Um, Again, ambush predators that are used to approaching their prey from below they look up and they see the outline of a person uh, on a surfboard, you know, their feet and if they're wearing flippers or in their hands can look like a marine mammal, which is their normal prey. Um, for these large um, large sharks, like great whites, um, and certainly a meg, if one was to exist uh, today, those first bites are usually something of a test bite. It's an exploratory bite because um, they use their mouths to sort of sense their environment around them.
1: So they're like giant, angry toddlers. Exactly. And
3: so it takes that test bite and it's like, ah, oh, this isn't for me, and spits it out. But when you're, like a meg here, exerts uh, 41,000 uh, pounds per foot of uh, uh, pressure, one bite can be enough.
1: Well, considering that like that one tube she's in, you know, the whole, oh, this tube will never break and she's in there. And he's sw- just swallowing the tube. Yeah. And that's pretty realistic because sharks eat anything,
3: don't they? I wouldn't say sharks eat anything, but uh, they certainly have their primary food sources. I think when you see them eating strange things and garbage, you know, they're, they're, they're looking through a different set of senses than we are. And especially mm-hmm. things that are metallic um, can be more attractive to them because the way their senses help them focus their hunting. Um, so that's mm-hmm. when you see them eating things like cans and license plates, like we saw in jaws and uh, those things certainly do yeah, happen. That's exactly
1: what I was thinking of is the scene where they open up the shark and it's like it's got license plates in it but no, you know, bits and pieces of people.
3: Yeah, they do have incredibly uh, powerful gastric juices uh, in their stomach. Their stomach acid's very strong. Um, they can they can pass through a lot without tums. Lucky them.
2: You know, I said earlier that I kept bumping into weird things in this movie. The other thing I want to mention and again this is is something that I assume the two of you have much more familiarity with but I can't think of a time in this movie where, you know, they spend all of this time underwater. They have all of this gear specifically to be in the water. I never saw an instance where anyone that had a way to breathe underwater had what I assume or have always seen as the standard like, oh, here's another line in case I come across someone else. They never had air for someone else, which really struck me just from all of the diving that I've done. I didn't know if that was the norm on less commercial scuba gear.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm not a commercial diver either. Um, Certainly I'm a science diver and a um, a regular um, paddy open water scuba diver. But certainly when you look at the whole system of diving, but you want to keep buddies with you, you always dive with somebody else, uh, especially with the recreational Mm -hmm. type diving. Mm. Um, Part of that is also providing when you both have alternate air sources, that is, thats doubling and providing double redundancy to both of you for um, for an air supply if something goes wrong with your equipment. Um, I don't know all the, the commercial standards, but I would be shocked if they don't also require um, double air sources and redundancy for air supplies.
1: Because she has the full face, instead of the goggles and the, the mouthpiece, she has the full face mask that allows her to breathe, which I think is pretty cool because
3: you'd have better peripherals too.
2: Which is weird though, because she still had a nose and mouth suction.
3: You have to have that To be able to equalize, yeah. I've used those before.
2: And so I was like, why when she cracked where her eyes were at, why was she losing air if she had a complete seal around her mouth and nose?
3: It's not necessarily a complete seal, but Uh what it does is it there's a couple there's a little access port on the bottom that Uh you can use to get to your nose so you can equalize.
2: Oh, interesting.
3: Yeah, but it's not it's not a perfect seal. Yeah, why isn't there a secondary backup here?
2: And at the end of the movie, why aren't his eyes just bleached red from the sheer amount of salt water? He constantly <laughs> is not wearing a mask. In. <laughs> right. I think he pulls one out right? at one point and puts it on. I'm like, all right, well, I feel a little better now. He
1: just, he constantly had those eye drops, you know, yeah. every time the camera wasn't on him, he was putting the eye drops in, yeah. <laughs> you know,
3: all that stubble serves as like a localized filter to like filter out the salt. So his yes. face is just surrounded by a cloud of fresh water or he it
1: and is. And his bald head makes him very, very dynamic for getting through the water. Yeah. You know, that's why you can swim so fast.
2: No, and we do know that they like nobody succumbs to the effects of this movie once the movie is over because there's a sequel coming out in summer of 2023
3: indeed wait what how did i miss
1: yes. this there is
2: the meg oh God. subtitle the trench
3: the trench
2: yeah it comes out in the summer of 2023
1: Oh, uh, I might have to rent an entire movie theater for this. Like, just invite <laughs> friends. Amanda, since you're here in the area, what we'll do is we'll just do a whole day. We'll watch the first one, and then we'll go and see it at the theater. Mm. Um, no, I'm very excited about this. I love movies like this.
3: Yeah. So, favorite shark movies? What? Do you, what's your favorite shark movies?
1: I really, like, for just sitting and chilling, I love The Meg. Like, I just really do like it. It's lighthearted. The dog lives... The one that actually terrorized me was Jaws because I saw it when I was like in second or third grade. I probably, and then we went swimming in Long Island. Like I really should literally the same day. My uncle showed it to me and then we went, my cousin and I went swimming and it was horrifying the whole time. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the one that like really impacted me the most. And I still have mixed feelings about it because of the childhood (laughs) trauma. Yeah. Oh, I loved Open Ocean or Open Water. That's what it's called, Open Water.
3: Oh, that was a great one.
1: Fun fact, my friends and I went to see that right before I went to uh, OCS. Uh, So that was fun. Um, Hey, you're going to go join the Coast Guard. Here's a movie about sharks eating people in the water. Um, (laughs) I really liked that one because they made it. It was so realistically done where it was like you could see how horrifying that would be, how scary that would be. Um, and they did it without all big, gory special effects. Mm. Uh, I wanted to hear, what did you think of the one, uh, that Blakely was in the one where she's a surfer who gets stuck the shallows,
3: the shallows. Yeah. That is supposed to be a good one.
1: I I enjoyed that one because she's bleeding. Like you were talking about, she gets injured. And so every time there's sharks in the area and the shark knows she's there. So actually quick question, do sharks have object permanence?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm definitely not the expert on that, um, but you know, well we I do know that sharks um, can get habituated to certain feeding areas. Um, there's places that I've actually been to one in the Philippines um, where sharks congregate um, where they know that they're going to be fed by these tour groups, and of course that's something that's done in Florida. Um, in fact, some country, you know, and uh, I think. South Africa, maybe California. Um, people they put pass laws to restrict feeding of great whites around in certain areas um, mm. because they don't want them to get habituated. So it certainly makes sense that um, I think like most animals, they can gain a sense of where their food comes from and can get habituated to those areas. Does a shark remember a specific piece of prey that disappears and? is hanging around and will they wait around for it i don't know i think you have to design a very specific set of behavioral tests in order to get to the bottom of that but um i'm sure somebody's gotten after it at some point
1: maybe maybe this shark is one of the leftovers from deep blue sea it's all Mm. in the same universe those super
2: smart sharks
3: because remember those sharks got out
2: and it's like no one can know i'm here i'm i have to i have to eat her
3: well that was the subplot of the the book was that they were the shark was pregnant so and she gives birth and so they've got a you know that you know it raises the stakes cuz you know we've got a um, keep Smart it from baby from babies sharks. yeah yeah so
1: the shark is like Blake Lively's not allowed to leave no one can know I'm here and it's just like waiting for her
2: I do like deep blue sea because I love the idea of taking this predator and then giving it a very thoughtful brain that I, I like the scene where they're walking along the bottom of the ocean. And I enjoy the the concept of being hunted, not just accidentally being prey to. I loved, loved Deep Blue Sea.
1: Oh God, it's so good. It doesn't take itself seriously. I think is yeah. part of why I loved yeah. it so much. Like the biggest star in the movie, Samuel L. Jackson, giving his big, beautiful speech and right <laughs> in the middle of it, he just gets chomped and dragged back into the water. Like, the startled laughter in the theater when I saw it was just exactly right. Like, everyone, like, jumped and started cackling.
3: Well, it was pretty clear they only got Sam Jackson for a week for that shoot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so this has been a lot of fun. Um, It's been super fascinating learning stuff I didn't even know about sharks. And uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to check out the Meg. Hopefully, you watched it before the show. If you haven't, check it out. True or not, it's a lot of fun. Um, but what is your favorite shark movie of all time?
3: Well, my favorite of all time has to be Jaws. Like, I literally am here today because of Jaws. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised by my grandparents. Um, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't get to go to aquariums or cool stuff like that as much. But um, we I watched Jaws when I was six years old, and my reaction was, "You mean there's things like that that live in the?" ocean sign me up i was fascinated <laughs> never look back but uh you know jaws has its own special place i think uh deep blue sea is a good one and then i recently uh went back and revisited jaws 3d actually after watching this one and uh is as, as bad a rap as that movie gets um and there was uh they were certainly doing a lot of cocaine making that movie but uh <laughs> it, it actually holds up pretty well in 3d and just the the practical shark there's that that shot where the two divers are working uh, on repairing the underwater facility that um, this movie is clearly ripping off and uh, as they're repairing it the shark is approaching them and you're looking over the shoulder at this animatronic shark and just that sense of presence even mm. from a, a, a bad rubber shark is um, just does something for me that the CGI doesn't no matter how good yeah. it's getting these days
2: and the last question if you were going to make this movie only last three minutes, <laughs> what would be the thing you would change to divert the plot?
3: To make it only last three minutes. Yeah. If uh, you were going to
2: solve this problem in three minutes.
3: So, uh, in that initial scene, that was, uh, a clear ripoff of the abyss, uh, when they're on board that submarine, uh, that squid just needed to, uh, squeeze a little harder and, uh, Break through the sub, and uh, if Jason Statham <laughs> hadn't uh, made it out of there. That would have been his knowledge of secrets of these. Of this world would have died in a in a watery tomb.
2: <laughs> I like this. I like that your uh, your way of solving the movie is to get rid of the protagonist and just let the Meg win without interruption. <laughs> Darn squid that, which I think that shows us how much you love Jaws.
3: Yes, always rooting for the sharks for sure. Absolutely. So in the intersection of a uh, fantastic. Monsters and sharks. Um, have you ever seen one of my favorite cheesy, corny, bad, made-for-TV monster movies ever? Uh, Creature. Yes. No. Yeah. Highly recommend it. One. It's a uh, terrible, like paper-thin plot, all the rest, but one of the best Stan Winston um, practical monsters I've hmm. ever seen. Um, in the form of a giant half-man, half uh, great white shark. Just, <laughs> just awesome. Also based on a Peter Benchley novel, White Shark.
1: Nice. All right. Well, thank you very much. uh, And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Disaster Peace Theater.
0: This episode of Disaster Peace Theater, hosted by Anna Visneski, was edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with intro by Dan Cruiser and Chris Hill. You can contact us, learn more about the hosts, and check out our merch store at disasterpeacetheater.wtf.